You know, uh, last week we, we were doing the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we spoke about the church being an extended family, and uh, how as a new family, right, when we come together, there's, there's a bit of a learning curve, right? When families are married together, they, they grow together, there's a learning curve, there's growing pains that happen, right? We figure out how you can deal with one brother or one sister one way, and another you have to deal with them in a different way. Some you can be harsh on, some you have to be more gracious upon, in different ways. But you know, as we learn to navigate the roles in family life, we begin to live out the beauty of what Jesus came to redeem and rescue us for. And I think so often in churches, and I mean, it, it, it's been ones that I've grown up in, it's been ones I've been a part of, I've even with myself you know, in past times. I think when we speak of salvation, we a lot of times, we unfortunately fall woefully short of the full reality of it, I believe. Too often, I think we merely speak of a, a spiritual salvation, one that is obviously good, one that's necessary, to be sure, but I think we can be guilty sometimes of divorcing that spiritual salvation from the good news of salvation that rescues us from living a life, especially a communal life, that no longer chooses folly, one that rejects ways that lead to death and instead chooses wisdom and instead chooses life in our community. You know, our salvation finds its completion when the spiritual impacts the practical. When we live like Eden in the midst of a wilderness world. And I think it's going to look strange, right? It's going to look strange when we live in light of our salvation. When we live what Scripture teaches. When we live as a family in a different way. It's going to go countercultural. People are going to look at our family if we are living this out, and they're going to say things about us. Right? They're going to call us weirdos at times. Fair enough. They're going to call us a little old-fashioned. Maybe we're a little out of date, right? Again, get with the times. It's year blank. It always, it's amazing how that argument works every year because it's a new year, right? It's 2024, so we should be more further along. Or worse, what do they do? They see our way of life and they begin to hate us. They try to remove us from public life. They pass laws to prevent our family values, right? Or even worse, killing us for living as such. It's happened for 2,000 years, and it'll continue happening. But I think this family life is totally worth it. Why? Because it reflects the beauty of our King. It reflects the beauty of our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ. You know, some practices that we read, I think even as we read these in 1 Timothy, are a little bit tough, are they not? Even for us at times, but we follow these words in order that we might experience the abundant life that Jesus spoke about to his disciples. And today, what I want to do, I want to take a quick look. We're not going to go super deep today. We're going to do things a little bit different. And for those of you that are new, I'm going to warn you now so you have about 15 minutes to prepare your mind. Or those who have only been coming for a few weeks, every once in a while, what we like to do, if you've got the little sheet, you're like, discussion questions, oh, for later, no. Actually, those are for, for today. So every once in a while, what we like to do, I, I like to shorten my sermon. I want to bring the word to you to give you an idea, but then we're going to break up into small groups around us. And before everybody gets up to go to the bathroom, during that time, we have to know. I want, I want you to be prepared. Go now while I'm preaching, not then. Miss my words, not each other's. I mean that. 
But what we want to do, like we want to grow in this community. We want to take some time to hear from one another, hear from the different gifts being shared amongst one another. And when we step out, when we leave during that time, we actually take away from each other parts of the body that could be a benefit to one another. And so what we want to do is we're going to have that time here in a few minutes uh, in looking at this together and discussing. Then we'll come back together to get a chance to hear from one another. Is there anything that the Lord shared with you you want to share with the group? And, um, and so, you, what like I said, I want to take a quick look at another aspect or two of our family life, and then also a very, very rapid look into one thing that we're going to look at next week, um, and then we're going to take that time in the community together. So, are you with me? Let's look more at this family life that God has called us to, this sometimes awkward family life that we get to. So, Paul's going to turn his attention here in chapter 5, starting in verse 17, from widows to the issues of elders. We've talked about this, he's talked about it already, but now he's going to get into how it is that we deal with the leadership within the congregation. He's going to address four family values among the elders, and then in 6, 1, and 2, he's going to introduce this idea about masters and slaves. But what he's going to start by, and finish out chapter 5, he's going to look at these four family values that we need to look at with elders. If you would, read with me. If you have your Bibles, I recommend you bring them. Open them up. Be, be familiar with your scripture and be in, in the word together. Uh, this is reading from the net version, and it says it this. So I'm going to look at verses 17 and 18. The first family value that we have of elders, he says, Elders who provide effective leadership must be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in speaking and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain, and the worker deserves his pay. The first idea when it comes to elders in our family, <clears throat> those who are charged with the spiritual leadership of our family, is first, is to honor them. I think this is one of those, this is one of those passages that's either the, the pastor's favorite passage or probably one of his least favorite passages to preach, honestly. Why? Because it deals with money. Pastors either love to preach about money or they absolutely hate it. If there's any time, it's often if a pastor wants to, they're going to say this right before budget time comes along, Right? Preaching this along with 1 Corinthians 9, if you want a more developed kind of idea, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 3 through 11. Do you hear that again? 1 Corinthians 9 through 11. That's a good place to go. But Paul's going to tell the congregation here about caring. He had talked about caring for widows, but now he's going to say also to honor those who provide leadership. Especially, he says, those who handle the word of God. I think for far too many congregations and for too many you know, years, I think a lot of congregations see the pastor's role, see the elder's role, the leadership's role as to be poor and to be humble. And it's the congregation's job to make sure that they remain so, right? <laughs> see, you laugh because you know it's true in some places. But I think what Paul's getting at here and what he's going to say in this idea of giving this double honor that's going on here, he's talking about taking care of financially or monetarily or these things, taking care of those who are in leadership over you. Paul says you're to make it a priority to care for your shepherd and for his family. He says not to muzzle an ox while it's threshing. And what that has to do with, if you get your, your ox inside a threshing floor, a lot of times they'd have a stone in the middle, and the ox would go around and around and around, and that, they would turn the millstone and grind the grain that you're, you're wanting to have. But what happens is, in that time, what's going to happen to that grain that's it's milling? Some of it's going to fall where? It's going to fall on the ground, around the ox. And you'd be tempted to think, to what? 
I better put a muzzle on that ox so it doesn't what? Eat up all of my grain. But this is a, this is a call from the Old Testament law. From, you know, he's talking about here they, from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the sense is you don't muzzle that ox. Why? Because if it's doing the work for you, you benefit from the work that's going on, right? And if you muzzle that ox, you're not allowing to eat. You're taking advantage of what that ox is doing. I think Paul's going to use a similar thing here, and he does it in another place. He says, you know, he's, God doesn't care that much about an ox, does he? He's talking about something, a greater spiritual reality here. He says, don't muzzle them while they're treading. Take care of your teachers. Take care of those who are caring for you. And I think what this can be, this can be more than just simply a church paying a salary. I think the easy thing for a lot of times for churches to do is I just give my money and I don't think anything about it. We hope that the church is taking care of those in leadership, right? That's the easy way to do it. And I think that's a good way to do it in trusting the elders or the leadership. Sometimes congregations have to vote on that. I know a friend that, that's dealing with that very thing today. He's got to go before the whole congregation and say, can you give me a raise? It's, you know, that's intimidating. But it shouldn't be an intimidating thing for our pastors. They shouldn't have to fear coming to their people and say, I need to take care of my family, right? But it also, it can, it can be more than just church taking care of the, you know, their financial needs. It can be taking care of physical needs. Things that they may not be able to do otherwise. I know ways that people have helped me before in my family. They've helped come over and fix my, help me fix my car. They've cut down trees. They've done other things in my home. If there's something inside the house that needs help to be, it's broken, can you fix this for me? I don't know what I'm doing. I wasn't trained in those things. I've been training here, and I haven't been training a lot of other places. Um, but that's ways in which the church can help out. They can look out for them, providing a skill to unburden the pastor or the leaders and to honor them. So Paul says, first and foremost, honor them by taking care of them and their family. Second, in verse 19, he says this. Do not accept any accusation against an elder unless it can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. The second thing is, he says, not only honor them, but protect them. And it's going to happen from time to time. Members are going to wish, what the members wish to accuse an elder of some impropriety. It's going to happen. In every church, I don't care where it is, there's going to be an accusation. Human nature being what it is, right, there's going to be jealousy or other motives sometimes that can arise Sometimes the right motivations, sometimes the wrong motivations can arise. And so in order to protect those who are in leadership, what should we do? Paul says that those who are given to us as spiritual leaders, we are to watch out and not take one person's accusation against an elder. But in, he uses Deuteronomy 17 and 19 yet again to show the, the, the importance of when somebody in your leadership, there's an accusation made, it should always come at least by two or three. And Jesus talks about, right, when there is an accusation against somebody, a call out of sin, when there's two or three gathered in his name, what? Anybody? He's in their midst. That scripture is talking about when an accusation of sin is brought against somebody, when two or three are gathered together, coming before them to say, we need to call you out on the sin. Jesus says, I am there. I affirm that. It's not about worship. It's not about prayer. Those things are good. He's always there. He can be by yourself. He's going to be there, okay? That's not what that's about. But coming in these accusations, he says, we protect our leadership from false accusations. Protect them from one thing, because sometimes we even get it wrong. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this mean elders get away with sinning more than other people do? No, certainly not. Look further. Third point. Look at verse 20 and 21. Those guilty of sin must be rebuked, ooh, 
Ouch. What, before who? All people. Those who sin, elders who sin, must be rebuked before who? The church. Ouch. I don't like this verse. I, I want to skip this verse, right? But he says, rebuke them publicly, right, before all as a warning to the rest. Who's the rest here? To the rest of the elders. As a warning to the rest of the elders. Before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I solemnly charge you to carry out these commands without prejudice or favoritism of any kind. Paul says, if an elder is found out to be true, is sin, and is found to be true, he says to rebuke them before the whole congregation. What? So the other elders will be warned to take their sin seriously. Oh, if only the church actually did this. But too often, what do we do? And we see it often, we hide the sin of our leaders. We protect them. We make excuses often. Man, I, you know, we saw that for a long time, but we, I just didn't say anything, right? We protect them when protection's not due to them. And Paul says, if it happens, it needs to happen publicly. And I, like I said, I say this fearing these verses that I don't ever want to fall into this, right? I don't ever want to fall into public rebuke. And it should be a warning to me to not do it. That partly is how I keep my flesh at bay. However, and this is something I want to do for you right now as, your, as one of your elders. If you were here with us last week, I, there's something that's been on my heart and my mind as I've been thinking about this. Last week, I, I, I confess to you, I got caught up in a joke last week. Something that was said about uh, family trees and a certain state, I made a joke about it. I got caught up in the moment and I made a joke that I feel and I believe was an improper joke. Was it a huge thing? Maybe not. But you know what the thing is? Is the little things that happen, the little things that creep into our family, they create cracks that cause a lot bigger issue if we're not dealing with them. And so for you, I confess to you, and I ask for your forgiveness personally, that the joke that I made last week, I got it caught up in, and I apologize to that for you. I want to do that publicly. I don't want to do that just privately. I want to do that publicly, and I ask for your forgiveness of that. I think this is important in family life that we grow together pastor included. I'm not, I'm not exempt from anything. Our elders are not exempt from anything. So Paul says, if it's needed, rebuke them. But he goes on further in verses 22 through 25. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily so as to identify their sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He says in this last way, he's going to talk about selecting. If you want a good way of preventing number three from happening is there's good preventive methods to help that to be less likely is that fifth, fourth thing he says is that when you're selecting them, you honor them, protect them, rebuke them, and you select them. The final aspect Paul deals with is how to best prevent previous points of rebuke. And he says, first and foremost, he says, don't hastily put someone in leadership or else what? You yourself will identify with their sin. It's actually an active verb there he's talking about. He said, so you do not identify, not passively like, oh, I'm just this way, but in laying hands on somebody, calling them, you actively identify yourself with whatever sin that comes up that you did not take the time to figure out beforehand. In verse 24, he says, the sins of some people are obvious, right? True, right? Some is very obvious. Don't lay hands on those. Going before them into judgment. But for others, they show up when? 
later. We need to be slow about this. We need to take time. We need to look into things. Similarly, though, the flip side, good works are also obvious, and the ones that are not cannot remain hidden. In all things, he's saying, in time, if you take the time to evaluate those you're going to put in leadership, it's because their sin and good works cannot remain hidden forever. So he says, patiently wait. Don't rush to put somebody in leadership of your family. Because it one, if nothing else, it's going to come back and haunt you and bite you. Amen? Anybody been a part of that? I think we all probably have. And so Paul is going to also switch, his, switch gears. Verses 6, uh, chapter 6, 1 and 2, I'll be honest, whenever you're, it's, some things are kind of hard to preach. It's just like there's two verses in there, and you realize, oh, this is a letter he's writing, and it's not always easy to preach this. But what I want to do with this, I want to introduce it really quickly, and then in two weeks, uh, Andy Teston's going to be preaching for us next week, and in two weeks, I'm going to go to the book of Philemon to kind of look at this more in depth, where Paul writes a full letter about this idea but for today, I just want to introduce it, and then I want to get us to a time of some discussion. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Those who are under a yoke of slaves must regard their own masters as deserving of full respect. This will prevent the name of God and Christian teaching from being discredited. But those who have believing masters must not show them less respect because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve all the more because those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. You know, Paul's dealing with here, he's going to address in this time, in this society, what's going on, the reality that at the very least, a third of the people own slaves. This is a reality in the Roman Empire of what was going on in Ephesus, and Paul is dealing with these things. And he's dealing here, addressing a problem that among Christian slaves in particular. And it seems, from what we see, Paul is seeing that there were some of the slaves were disrespecting their Christian masters... Because they say, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a slave, that I have every right to, dis, you know, to be disrespectful to you because you're a brother now. We, we take away that slave-master relationship. And so, yes, I believe the gospel creates equality among Jesus' followers. Yes. Paul even says in other places, there's slave nor free. However, Paul thinks that equality needs to be implemented in a strategic way that does not compromise the mission and the witness of the church. I think what Paul is going to deal with here, and he's going to deal with in Philemon, and you see some of the ways in the Christians are dealing with in, this, in their society, is if Christians become associated with slave rebellions, they are compromised. See, I think the Christian transformation of the Roman household had to be implemented strategically, what so their neighbors could be persuaded and not repulsed by this new vision of what God's family could look like. I think this would be a thing for our time too, is what we see, how many things in our life, in our society that we want, the Christian life is to change. And what do we like to do? We like to go and just attack it and tear it down immediately. And the, the world reacts in a way, but how do we grow in response? It took a very long time. And there's a lot of Christians that did this poorly. We'll talk about it more next time. But Paul was not interested right here in, in this letter of how to tear down what was going on, but how to live in the midst of it and how the witness of the church and the gospel can go out in the midst of it. And so again, I want to look more at this next time with Philemon. So hold with me. I know that, that opens up a whole can of worms, but Paul opens it up here and he moves on. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at that more next time. 
And so I'm going to pause here. You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to conclude with this, um, and uh, I, where I did a couple weeks ago. I'm going to conclude with quoting my wife because she's brilliant, and I think she did a great job of just kind of bringing all this together, looking at these last two weeks with family. And I'm just going to read what she's had and and give us a, a charge and a prayer to go off and uh, into our week. So you know, this is how how she kind of looked at this passage. She said, you know, as a family, we are called to love and teach truth to each other. We must take care of each other and guard one another. However, we do not do these things merely for their own sake. Our actions should reflect the unity, peace, and love that exist within our triune God. In all of our relationships between men and women, elders, servants, masters, widows, people inside or even outside the church, we should strive for more than just positive interactions. We are being transformed daily into an image of God as the church. This means that we must make daily choices in our relationships and interactions that honor our calling and the way we were saved to this calling. Our family must work together in a unified and faithful manner to represent our triune God accurately. This faithful representation should be evident in every relationship that makes up our family. By serving one another, Instead of expecting to be served, we show the same selflessness Jesus displayed during his time on earth. In doing so, we demonstrate the faithfulness and truth of Jesus, who is free from any, <clears throat> any form of heresy or deception. Our actions play a crucial role in supporting the gospel that we are meant to share with the world. If we fail to align our marriages, our workplace relationships, and our day-to-day interactions with the teachings of Yahweh God, we end up, and hear this, preaching a false gospel in every aspect of our lives. Simply put, if our words profess a true gospel, but our actions paint a false one, then we are not conveying a helpful message, but a mixed one that cannot be trusted. I told you she's brilliant. I can't say it better now. Church, let us be about living out our practical salvation based upon the spiritual one that Christ has already provided us. Let the gospel be what we speak to others outside our family that they may enter in and may the gospel shape how we live while speaking the words of truth. Amen? Let us pray.